Uh, this morning we're going to hopefully cover verses 1 through 12 in Ruth chapter 4. <clears throat> Before I read our passage, let me once again uh, lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we ask for the blessing of the illumination of the Spirit this morning. Uh, pour out the Spirit upon this assembly of your people in order that uh, beyond the voice of the preacher we might hear the voice of Jesus Christ himself speaking in Holy Scripture. Let there be grace and truth that comes home to our hearts so that the Lord Jesus Christ is exalted among us this morning. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Ruth chapter 4 in verse 1. Let's uh, hear God's word. <clears throat> now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, uh, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers, and from the gate of his native place, you are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, 
because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Well, in a sense, this story is about a name worthy of remembrance and a name not worth remembering at all. Uh, The great dilemma the narrator of, of Ruth has set out to resolve is how will the name of Elimelech be preserved in Israel since he has no heir? Naomi cannot bear him a son. Ruth, his daughter-in-law, cannot bear him a son because she also has lost her husband, Malon. And so Elimelech's name, and along with it, the allotment of land within the land of promise, will surely be lost forever. Or at least that appears to be the case. Now, we need to, to understand the significance of that. We need to understand at that time to possess a parcel of land in the promised land that could be passed on to your descendants was a kind of, it was a kind of sign that you belonged to the people of God and that the covenant promises and the covenant blessings of God were for you and your family. And so to lose a place in the land of promise and to have your name disappear from the roles of the people of God was a terrible prospect. That's been the crisis driving the story forward here. How will the family name and place among the people of God be kept and preserved? And as we saw, it's been a while though, but as we saw back in chapter 3, Boaz is of the clan of Elimelech. That is, he, he stands in the place where he is able to rescue Naomi and Ruth and preserve the family's name and place by marrying Ruth the Moabitess and raising up an heir. And you'll remember how that unfolded when Ruth came to Boaz in the night on the threshing floor and essentially proposed marriage to Boaz. And Boaz responded by promising to attend to the matter first thing in the morning. But you may also remember that he introduced a note of tension at that point and said that there stands one closer than he Uh, in the family line to serve as the redeemer. So regardless of how Boaz may feel about Ruth, he will be unable to redeem it unless this other redeemer refuses to do so. And so as we come to the last chapter to see how things are going to unfold when Boaz swings into action, notice, I want you to notice this and hold on to this idea until the end. Notice that throughout this chapter, for the first time in the story, really, Naomi and Ruth take a back seat. No more more speaking is attributed to them for the remainder of this book. In chapter 4, all of the action, all of the attention, the spotlight, as it were, is directed to, to the activity of Boaz. And as we watch him act on behalf of Naomi and Ruth this morning, I want us to focus on three things. First of all, the the kind of savior we require. Boaz teaches us about that, the kind of savior we require. Secondly, the kind of service we render. And thirdly, the kind of salvation we receive. The savior we require, the service we render, the salvation we receive. 
And so in the first place, let's think about the kind of Savior we need. Take a look again at Boaz in verse 1, true to form. He's a man of his word. Having promised the night before that he would deal with the issue quickly, now that the sun has come up, it looks as though he has gone directly from the threshing floor to the city gate. And there he has sat down. Now the city gate at that time was the equivalent of city hall or the county courthouse. It was the place where legal transactions were handled, where judicial decisions were made. And by sitting down there, Boaz was giving public notice of his intention to conduct a legal and binding transaction. And just by the way, this is an aside. Don't don't miss the delightful note in the story that highlights for us once again the, the marvelous, wonderful providence of God. I wonder if you caught that as we were reading. Boaz has taken his seat in the gate, and what do you read? And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Impeccable timing, isn't it? Because, well, it is, because God is at work. Just as Boaz comes to the city gate and has a seat, who is it that happens to pass by? that very morning, but the very man that he needs to do business with. See, God has impeccable timing, and over and over again, the book of Ruth is teaching us that he will work out his purposes for the good of his people, for his own glory, and in his own time. So then Boaz takes action. He, he says to the other redeemer, turn aside, friend, and uh, sit down here. And then he quickly calls the court into session. Ten elders of the city are asked to join them. They sit down and then Boaz very skillfully begins to present his case. Uh, Verse 3, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling a plot of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I, I thought I'd bring this to your attention and say, buy it in the presence of the elders. Uh, if, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me because... Um, There's no one else to buy it, and I'm the next in line. So in other words, he's presenting this as a juicy deal. I've got an opportunity for you. Naomi is selling. She's selling not actually the land itself, but the rights to the use and the profits of the land. Uh, Usufruit is the technical term, if you care about that. You can drop that into a conversation later today sometime. Usufruit. Um... So she's selling the profits and proceeds of the land in order to provide for herself and Naomi in in their destitution. And so if the nearer redeemer bought the field, he'd ensure at least that it would stay within the same clan from which Elimelech had come, given the fact that Naomi and Ruth are without children. Uh, And the the man, verse 4, you see he's immediately excited about the prospect Without hesitation, really, I I will redeem it. After he hears about this opportunity to expand his portfolio and add another property to his possession, another means of income, he's quick to say, I will redeem it. I will do it. But then you see the, the shrewdness of Boaz, don't you? Boaz skillfully follows up with the second part of the deal in verses five through six. You will redeem it, he, he, he says, in effect. Well, that's, that's wonderful news. Let's, let's drop the paperwork. And if you would just 
sign here, here, and here, and initial under, uh, on the dotted line here. And, and while you're doing that, there's just one part of the deal that I forgot to mention to you. Don't let me stop you. You keep writing. Your, your new piece of real estate comes with a mother-in-law and a new wife. And the obligation to raise a son on your own dime until, of course, he's old enough to take back the land that you're buying today on behalf of Ruth's dead husband, and the land will be his. So anyways, as I was saying, if you would just sign the paperwork here, we can have this deal done, and we can be on our way. And you see what Boaz has has done here. Uh, As the full terms of the agreement dawn on this man's mind, we can imagine the blood draining from his face suddenly, He's backing out of the deal. Oh, I cannot redeem it lest it impair my own inheritance, he says. You see, he was happy to help Naomi and Ruth out of their predicament when he looked like he stood to gain by being the redeemer. But it's another matter entirely now that it's made clear that actually along with the temporary prophets and income of the the land, he's assuming all of the responsibility for Elimelech's dependents. And any son that Ruth bore him would not be considered his heir, but Elimelech's heir. And the parcel of land that he purchased would not belong to him, the redeemer, but would instead belong to Elimelech's heir. So now he's worried instead of making a profit from this deal that he will actually lose something as a result of this deal. So you see what's going on. When he stood to gain from this transaction, he was all in. I will redeem it. But when it would cost him something, and when the gain instead wasn't for him, but was for Naomi and Ruth and the potential heir and inheritor of the land, he wasn't interested at all in being the redeemer. See what the contrast of the narrator is setting up for us here. But Boaz, right? But Boaz is not like that man. Because when the man tells Boaz, look, I can't do this. Why don't you redeem it in his place? Boaz is quick to perform. He has the the rather strange ritual in verses 7 and 8 to seal the deal. The giving of the sandal, I suppose, is... The equivalent of spitting in your hand and shaking on it, though I think it's probably a little more legally binding than that. But he he gave Boaz his sandal in the presence of the elders, and the deal was done. So now he's he's bought the field, but if we've been listening closely in on the story of Ruth, much more than that, I think, is he has one Ruth to be his wife. He, He will be the one to preserve the name and the allotment of Elimelech's family. And here's the kicker. You understand that Boaz will bear the same costs and endure the same liabilities as the other man. But whereas the other man was unwilling to risk or give up anything, Boaz is prepared to commit himself unreservedly to redeem Naomi and Ruth, and secure the family name among the people of God. He acts without hesitation. He acts wisely. He acts faithfully, keeping his promises to Naomi 
and Ruth and supremely Boaz acts sacrificially. Now who does that remind you of? You see, Boaz is a picture of our great Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Redeemer that we all require, the Redeemer redeemer that we all need, a Redeemer who rescues us at his own great cost, one who loves us and will not rest until the matter is dealt with. See, Boaz here is a picture of of Jesus Christ, to, to be sure, There are other alternative redeemers out there who maybe initially seem to be so promising, who themselves promise us so much. You can rest your your hope for for meaning and significance and security and satisfaction and all kinds of so-called redeemers. But none of them can do for you what the one greater than Boaz has done for his people. And I think this story is meant to teach us about that. That Jesus is the one who, though he was rich, became poor for our sakes in order that we might become rich. That he, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. As Paul talks about in, in Romans chapter 3, that God the Father through Jesus Christ has secured our redemption. How has he done it? He has done it with his very own lifeblood the Lord Jesus has. And like Boaz, actually it's the other way around, it's Boaz like Jesus, but you get what I'm saying. He acts, he acts wisely, he acts faithfully, but supremely and preeminently the Lord Jesus acts sacrificially. And so if you've been looking to to someone or something else for redemption, you're wasting your time because Jesus Christ is the redeemer we all need. This is the first lesson we see from this story, the, the savior we require. Boaz points to him, Boaz prefigures him. So look to Jesus, trust in Jesus to settle the matter. That's the first thing we learn here. The second lesson I want us to think about then is the service we render. So the the Savior we require. Secondly, the the service we render. Now notice how Boaz addresses the other potential redeemer in the second part of verse 1. In in the English translation that we have, the ESV, it says, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. Now that, that phrase translated... Friend is the Hebrew expression, plani almoni. The the new Jewish publication society translates the phrase as Mr. So-and-so. Mr. So-and-so. What's going on here? The writer is deliberately drawing attention to the namelessness of this individual. He could have called him the other man or the other redeemer, but instead he goes out of his way to use this Hebrew expression, which some have translated as Mr. So-and-so. He's actually telling us something important about this guy, and we begin to see what it is when we remember that the great concern of the narrator of Ruth is the preservation of the family name 
and inheritance of Elimelech. That was the, the dilemma that Boaz set out to resolve. Did you catch the irony here? The great irony of this part of the story is that the man who is in the first place to preserve Elimelech's family name is the one man whose name is deliberately left out by the storyteller. He's just Mr. So-and-so. have no idea who he is. His name is blotted out from the record. So what's the lesson? Well, in Scripture, it's always bad news when your name is forgotten or when your name is blotted out. Example here, Deuteronomy 9.14, God in his wrath threatened to blot out the name of Israel under, uh, under, from under heaven. Or in Psalm 109 verse 13, there is a curse on the wicked that echoes really the concern here of the book of Ruth. May his posterity be cut off, may his name be blotted out in the second generation. See, that's what Mr. So-and-so could have avoided for Elimelech. But in his refusal to do so, it's precisely what he ends up experiencing himself. His name is forever forgotten. And so you see, there are two redeemers in this passage. One who serves only himself, and he has no name. And one who serves sacrificially, and his name is never forgotten by the Lord. Remember the teaching of the Lord Jesus himself in um, the Gospel of John. Jesus said, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's John chapter 12, 25, and 26. Isn't that the lesson here? In New Testament terms, whoever loves his life, this life, Jesus says, in the end loses it. But whoever hates his life in this world keeps it for eternal life. Whoever seeks to make a name for themselves loses their name in the end. But whoever serves sacrificially as they follow the Lord Jesus and his life of humiliation, will follow him in the path leading and giving way to exaltation. Their names are never, ever forgotten. See, there's an important lesson in this story about the Christian life, a principle for the Christian life. Because if you belong to Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, this is a calling in your life. Yes, to be sure, Boaz reminds us of Christ and his selflessness as he redeems Ruth and Naomi. But, but there's another question we could ask. Here's the question as we observe him acting so selflessly. Would others observing you be led to think of the Lord Jesus Christ as Boaz leads us to think of him? Is there much of the Savior in your selfless sacrificial service? Does your life have the aroma of the Savior who came into the world not to be served but to serve? I suppose another question we could ask ourselves to bring it home 
even more is, will, will your name be preserved in the book of life? Or will you be just another Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so? Who despite perhaps what you say with your words, your life declares that you actually don't follow Jesus at all. And so the Savior we require, the service we render, and then finally the salvation we receive. Take a look at the end of our section here in verses 11 and 12, the blessing pronounced by the people and elders upon Boaz and Ruth as their marriage is at last secured. We are witnesses, they say. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, Leah and Rachel were the wives of Israel's father, Jacob. And by comparing Ruth to Leah and Rachel, these elders, I think, are saying something truly extraordinary, filled with significance for this Moabitess. Uh, The same thing is true of their prayer that Ruth's son would be like Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Judah was Boaz's direct ancestor. Uh, Bethlehem Ephrathah belongs to the territory allotted to the tribe of Judah. Another connection here, of course, is that Tamar, like Ruth, was a Gentile. But so in making these connections, I wonder if you see the point the elders are making. It really is amazing. They are recognizing Ruth as a true Israelite, even though she was a Moabite by birth. They are saying she belongs as much as, and they were praying that she will have a role analogous to Rachel and Leah and Tamar. It's, It's almost as though this group collectively grasps that Uh, Their marriage anticipates great future blessing, not just for Boaz and Naomi and Ruth, but for the whole people of God, as indeed it did, as I I hope we'll see next week. But but for now, can, can you see that Ruth the outsider is now Ruth the insider? Ruth the Moabitess is now Ruth the Israelite. She has been engrafted into the plans and purposes of God to bring redemption to the world. That's what this kinsman redeemer does for her. And that really is what Christ does for all of us. He takes us from the outside and he brings us all the way in. He takes us from a place of exclusion and transfers us into a place of belonging among the people of God. He gives us a place and a people so that we belong. It's a, an Old Testament lesson in what we read in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in, in chapter 2 when we read those words that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought in here by the blood of Christ so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
So you see, when you came to trust in the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, you stopped being a stranger to the people of God. You became a member of the family. You became a a, a citizen with all of the rights of the people of God the moment you trusted in the Redeemer, the one greater than Boaz. He has brought you all the way in. You see, the gospel brings Moabites and makes them inheritors of the rich inheritance Jesus Christ has won for his people. The the gospel makes sinners saints. It it provides pardon for the guilty. It it cleanses the dirty. It, It sets captives free. There's room for you, the book of Ruth is telling us. You are invited in. All you need to belong is the Redeemer. And, and remember that the feature I mentioned at the start of this chapter, as, as we took note of it, is that all of the action here is not done by Naomi and Ruth, but by Boaz. All of the action is, is uh, taken care of, not by the ones in need of redemption, but by the one in, in the role of the Redeemer himself. So the opening sentence of uh, verse 4, just as one example of that, actually it features an unusual Hebrew uh, sentence structure, which is intended to highlight Boaz, puts Boaz before the action verb, to to put him in a place of, uh, of recognition. Our attention is intentionally being directed to him. And as you scan through the chapter, almost all of the active verbs are directly related to Boaz. Naomi and Ruth, however, their stance is summed up at the end of chapter 3, if you look back at that. What are they doing? They are waiting on Boaz to act. So how do you come in from the outside? How do you find a place among the people of God? You do it not by your own work, but by relying like Naomi and Ruth entirely upon the work of your Redeemer. See, all the attention falls on him because all of the action is his in securing your redemption and your place among the people of God. So you wait upon him, you rest upon him, you trust him to do everything necessary to save you. There's nothing to do but to trust him to settle the matter for you. He is your redemption, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 1. So there there is room for each of us in the kingdom of God because of Christ the Redeemer. All you need to do is rest yourself upon him and his redeeming work for you. It's the message of the book of Ruth. So let's end this morning with just a A question for ourselves. Do you have a redeemer? And how's that working out for you? Do do you have the redeemer? The Lord Jesus Christ. Because he can give you a name written forever in the book of life. But without him this story is also reminding us like Mr. So-and-so. Your name will be blotted out forever. So the invitation of the book of Ruth is, won't you, like like Ruth, like Naomi, 
adopt their stance and trust in the one greater than Boaz to act for you. The Savior we require is the Lord Jesus himself. The service we render, those who follow him serve selflessly just like the Savior they follow. And the salvation that we receive, outsiders find a place on the inside, strangers are brought in to belong among the people of God. There's no one so far out, so far lost, so far gone, that through faith in Jesus Christ, you who were once far off, you who were once alienated and separated, cannot be brought in and brought near to belong among the people of God, united together in Christ Jesus. So may the Lord help us to, to rest in Christ, the perfect Redeemer who acted sacrificially in order to win for us so great a salvation. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus Christ has done the work, that he has settled the matter by going to the cross to secure the redemption of his people. We pray this morning that you would enable us to live lives of sacrificial service so that when others look upon us, they might be led to think of him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.